Well, back in 2013, there is this hip-hop group by the name of the Black Eyed Peas. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you've heard of this song. It struck a nerve, it became the biggest single of that year. And what's interesting about this song is that it was both a prayer and a lament. And different artists had different parts of this song that they sang. And some of it went like this. It just ain't the same. Old ways have changed. New days are strange. Is the world insane? Nations dropping bombs, chemical gases filling lungs of little ones with ongoing suffering as the youth die young. So ask yourself, is the loving really gone? Yo, whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity. Lack of understanding leading us away from unity. That's the reason sometimes I'm feeling under. That's the reason sometimes I'm feeling down. Got to keep my faith alive till love is found. Now ask yourself, where is the love? People killing, people dying, children hurting, hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? And would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me questioning, where is the love? That question is a good question. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to uh, have any kind of faith commitment in your life to be able to ask that kind of question. Uh, No matter where we come from, I find it interesting that that all of us sometimes find ourselves feeling down and, and feeling under as we look at the news, as we look at what's happened in our own lives, And part of us just aches with that question, where is the love? We're working our way through this book of Philippians, and Paul, the apostle, this right-hand man of Jesus, his ambassador to the Roman Empire, finds himself in chains in a Roman prison as he's awaiting his sentence to find out what's going to happen with his life. And there's a very real sense in which he could have looked around and, and saw just the injustice of it all and asked the question, where is the love? But he was feeling love from a group of Christians living in the Roman colony of Philippi. It's a place that he had planted a church. And some 10 years later, as he finds himself in prison, these Philippians have sent him words of encouragement. They sent him a gift so he can buy food and clothing. And so he writes back to say thank you to them and to encourage them in the faith. And as we're going to look at the text today, he's going to drive home the point of love. We've already seen in the first part of this chapter that we've looked at in the in the past weeks, that Paul himself has been thinking of them and praying for them. And he says that he's been praying with them, uh, for them with joy to God. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's such a bond between Paul and these Philippian followers of Jesus that if you ask the question, where is the love? You can say it's right here. There's an expression of it in a rather brutal empire. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the contents of that prayer that Paul told them that he was praying about. And so we're going to call our study today the essential ingredient of a well-lived life. This ingredient needs to be in our life if we want to live a well-lived life. And when it's gone, we feel its absence, even as we look around the world and feel its absence. So would would you pause with me and let's pray and ask the Lord to open our eyes and, and our hearts to receive the things that are written for us this day. Let's pray. 
Father, every one of us who comes into this room, whether we find ourselves followers of Jesus or just curious or, or skeptical and, and jaded about everything, Lord, we recognize that we live in a world that is suffering from a lack of love. Would you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight as we gather this morning to open up this ancient letter from Paul the Apostle, words to these Philippian Christians, and by your grace, words to us this day as well. Help us to, to take home what is, is being said here and have our lives changed and transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, back in verses 3 and 4, said these words, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So he's told them that he has been praying for them, and now he's going to tell us what he's been praying for. Verse 9 he says, and it is my prayer. Before we look at that prayer, let's just stop and ask this question. What is the one thing, more than anything, you would ask God to give this community of Jesus followers? Put yourself in the chains of Paul as you're thinking about this group of Christians seeking to follow Jesus faithfully in a very hostile culture, what would you ask God to do? If you had one big ask, one big request, if you could pray for Mercy Hill Church and for God to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight, what is the one thing that you would ask the Lord to give to us? This is what Paul asks. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. One commentator kind of gets the gist of what we're getting at here when he writes, Paul has had an audience with the infinitely rich sovereign of the universe, and he can ask this king to give the most wonderful gift imaginable to his beloved spiritual children in Philippi. What will it be? Paul asked God to give the Philippian Christians overflowing love, blended with discerning wisdom. Some of you might be thinking, <laughs> you know, to be honest, that's not exactly what I thought he would ask. It seems a little bit anticlimactical, right? If you can get, ask God for anything for these Christians struggling to follow Jesus, he's asking for love. I mean, sure, that's kind of basic, but, but how about asking for freedom to worship Jesus without the fear of ending up in chains like Paul is? How about the courage to be able to live for Jesus without fear of persecution, without people saying, I'm not going to do business with you because you're a follower of Jesus. That would be something really good to ask, don't you think? But Paul doesn't ask that. What Paul asks for is that their love would abound more and more. Why does he ask for that? Is that what you would have asked for? Why does he ask for that? Well, here's a key thought that I think might have been bouncing around in his mind. You can have a lot of things but if you don't have love, you have missed out on the most important thing. In the midst of their difficulty in following Jesus, in the midst of the heat being turned up in terms of persecution, as they lived in the middle of this Roman colony, Paul asked them for love. We all know, someone might say, that love is a big deal. But have you ever stopped just to think about why is it a big deal? Well, when you follow Jesus, what you find out is Jesus helps us to think about why we've been created this way. It goes all the way back to when God first created humanity. And he created us, as scriptures say, in his image. Which means, among other things, that we are God's representatives. That he has commissioned us to live and to love in this world. And we're meant to reflect the character of God to everyone and to everything in this creation. 
In fact, when the Apostle John summarized the essence of who God is, he simply said, God is love. Not that love is God, but that God is love. And if we are to reflect who God is in this world, we have to reflect this essential character, this essential ingredient of who God is, we might say. And as I thought about this, I just want to use an illustration that we're all very familiar with, and that is the, the killing of George Floyd. We're about two and a half years past this, and yet the, the ripples of this still are making their way felt through society. As you know, uh, George Floyd uh, was um, arrested, and several police officers uh, knelt on top of him, and one police officer had his, his neck, I'm sorry, his, his knee on his neck for, for some nine minutes, about two minutes, 45 seconds after he stopped breathing. And as video came out of this, everyone was enraged. Everyone just saw how incredibly unjust this was. And the next day, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Frey, had a press conference. And listen to what he said, because there's one phrase in here that jumped out at me that has stuck with me ever since. He says, for five minutes we watched a white police officer press his knee into the neck of a black man. For five minutes. Found out later it was, it was over nine minutes. When you hear someone calling for help, you're supposed to help. This officer failed in the most basic human sense. For the better part of the night, I've been trying to find the words to describe what happened. All I kept coming back to is this. This man should not have died. What we saw is horrible, completely and utterly messed up. The man's life matters. He matters. He was someone's son, someone's family member, someone's friend. He was a human being, and his life mattered. Whatever the investigation reveals, it does not change the simple truth. He should still be with us this morning. That phrase that jumped out at me, that grabbed hold of my attention, that has stuck with me ever since, and I think about over and over again, was that this officer failed in the most basic human sense. Now, I don't know what Jacob Frey believes personally. I don't know if he's a follower of Jesus or, or if he's an atheist. But surely, when we look at something like this, and we make a verdict that someone fails in the most basic sense, we have some idea of the sense that it ought to be, the way things are supposed to be. Which makes me ask the question, what does it mean to succeed in the most basic sense? And Jesus answers that question for us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to ask Jesus, what does it boil down to? What's the most basic human sense of what we ought to be doing? He would say it can be defined in the word love. Love to God and love toward one another. Or as Paul put it, as he wrote to the Galatian Christians, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And so Paul says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now note, he's not asking that God would give them love. They already have love. God is working in them that which is pleasing in his sight. Remember we saw last week in verse 6 that Paul was confident that he who began a good work in them will continue it, bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So they have love. But what he's asking is that their love would abound more and more. And some of you may know 
there's a particular Greek word that is used over and over again by the writers of the followers of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the Greek word agape. There were basically four words um, in existence at that time. One of them was very rare, agape. But there's a word called storge, which simply refers to family affection. There's a word eros, which refers to romantic love. Philia, which refers to a type of love that exists among friends. But there's this other phrase that became prominent in Christian teachings. And that's that word agape. And it simply means an unconditional, self-giving, self-sacrificing kind of love. In fact, the legend J.I. Packer put it this way. The Greek word agape, or love, seems to have been virtually a Christian invention. A new word for a new thing. It was virtually a Christian invention. I mean, it did exist in the Greek language, but it was hardly ever used. And when they thought about what Jesus has done for them and what he calls us to, they could think of no better word to use than agape. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, talking to his disciples, just right before he was crucified, said this, Greater love, or greater agape, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And so Paul is asking that their love may abound more and more. This is what he got, wants God to work in them, a, a love that abounds more and more. And that word abound is an interesting word. I've looked up several um, Greek dictionaries to see kind of what the gist of it is. And they said things like this, to be over and above, superfluous, <laughs> to superabound in quantity or quality, enough with more despair, or simply more than enough. What Paul is asking is that their love would grow and increase in such a way that it's just overflowing. It's more than enough for any and every situation they find. Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, had these words of commendation along these same lines. He says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing. And all Paul could say is, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. The Thessalonians who lived just down the road from the Philippians had, had God work in their life in such a way that they are overflowing and abounding in love towards one another. And all Paul can say is, keep it up. Do this more and more. You are living in line with your design. You are living in line with your redemption. Just keep doing what you're doing. And so let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves the hard question. Is this kind of love, a sacrificial, agape kind of love, growing more and more in my life? Do I see evidence of God working, the kind of love with which Christ loved us, in my life more and more as I look at the way I love and interact with people around me? I don't know about you, as I look at my life, I'm like, ah, maybe sometimes. But I can think of a lot of times when that's not front and center. Paul doesn't want their love simply to grow more and more, but he wants it to grow with knowledge and discernment. Let's spend just a moment thinking about these two words because it's, it's important. Paul could have just said, I want your love to abound more and more and just move on. But he throws in these two words, knowledge and discernment. This word knowledge is used some 20 times in the New Testament, and it always has to do with a spiritual kind of knowledge. That is, a knowledge of, of God's will, of, of what God would want from us. Paul used this word when he wrote to the Corinthian, I'm sorry, the, the Colossian Christians. 
And he said this, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul's prayer for these Colossian Christians was that they would know with a spiritual knowing God's will in their life so that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the idea behind what Paul is getting at when he talks to these Philippian Christians. And he wants them to grow in a love that is married to knowledge. But he also uses this word discernment. And this discernment means a a perception or understanding, a, a moral discernment in ethical matters. My friends, we need this kind of discerning love to overflow in our lives today. You and I know that we live in a culture where where people want us to endorse anything and everything, and they say, if you don't endorse me, you're not loving. But Paul wants us to love and to overflow with love, but to love with knowledge and discernment, to be able to endorse what needs to be endorsed in ethical matters and to be able to speak up or to not endorse in other times. I like the way a couple of commentators put this. They said, knowledge asks the question, what is right? Discernment asks the question, what is best? It seems what Paul has in mind, and he's praying for God to help you answer the question, what is the best way for me to love this person based on what your word says? I think that's a good way of putting it. Let's just think of the example of the, the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. He talked about this This man who was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, this 17-mile stretch, it was just notorious for having robbers and a very dangerous place. And this man who was on his journey fell into the hands of robbers who beat him. They robbed him. They left him half dead. And Jesus said there are two very religious people who passed by. One was a priest, this person who's supposed to lead the people in worship and to teach God's will to people. He sees this person. And he passes by on the other side. He he goes out of his way to go around him. And then a Levite came. The Levites were in charge of the temple worship. And he passed by this man and saw him and, and passed by on the other side. We might say that the priest and the Levite failed in the most basic human sense to do what needed to be done in this moment. I'm sure they could have justified it in their mind and said, well, you know, if, if I touch this person and, and he's dead after all, then I would be ceremonially defiled and I'd have to sit out for a week at the temple. Well, maybe so, but what's best in this situation, what you know you're supposed to do, which is to love, and what this situation calls for in this moment is the best way to love. And so don't think about yourself. Help attend to this man. And Jesus uses the story of a Samaritan which, if you remember, the Jews and the Samaritans despised one another, did not have interactions with one another. Jesus said a Samaritan passed by, and when he saw this man, he had compassion on him. He he was filled with love with this person. He knew what the right thing was to do, and and he moved toward him, and he took him, and he bandaged his wounds, and took him to an inn to get care for him, and he promised to pay for any additional additional medical expenses that he would have. This, Jesus said, is the man who loves well. I think that's kind of getting at what Paul is saying here when he says, I want your love to abound in knowledge and in discernment. And then he gives us in verse 10 the reason why. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. That is, you may know the right thing to do, the the beautiful thing to do. 
the most excellent thing to do in this situation. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That word pure in my English translation here is, I don't think, the very best word that can be used. I mean, I understand why the translators used it. But when you look at the word in the original language, it means to be judged by sunlight. And the way it's usually explained is that if you lived in that day and you went to the market and you were going to buy a piece of pottery, you would hold it up to the light and see if there are any cracks in it. You would judge that pottery by light. Today, we'd probably say you'd, you'd get a $100 bill, you'd look it up at the sun and, to make sure that it has the, the correct um, securities in there so that you know that it's authentic. And so that word pure, in my translation here, basically means to test something as genuine or authentic. The New King James Version, I think, puts it perfectly when it says that you may be sincere. That is genuine, authentic, the real thing. Paul says, I want you to live and to love in this way, with knowledge and discernment, so that you may be proved true, that you may be the real deal, that your following of Jesus may, may actually be authentic. Think of what Jesus said back in that chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. A new commandment I give to you, he says to his disciples, that you love one another. And as you know, that wasn't a new commandment. The Old Testament said that over and over again. But what was new was how Jesus defined it. I give, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, to agape one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have agape for one another. You prove to be a disciple or follower of Jesus by the way that you live and the way that you love. That other word is found in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10 is the word blameless. Paul wants them to love this way so they be uh, sincere or authentic and blameless. And that word blameless literally means not causing offense. And it can refer to either you stumbling or me stumbling into a scandalous sin. Sometimes it's used in the way, in the way that I've, I've lived with a clear conscience. Or in causing someone else to stumble or to sin. Let's think about something else that's in the headlines right now. Two months ago, almost exactly, there is a headline that came out with these words. The U.S. Department of Justice is investigating the Southern Baptist Convention. What does this mean? If you have been paying attention to the news, you know that the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a, a network made up of Southern Baptist churches, has dealt horribly <laughs> with people who have said that they had been abused by pastors or teachers or youth leaders or something like that. And instead of bringing this out to the light, it was swept underneath the carpet. In fact, we found out that the executive committee kept a list of these people and said nothing as they moved from church to church to church. Anyway, the author of this article said this. More than four decades after sexual abuse claims against the Catholic priest first made national headlines, spurring accusations, lawsuits, a series of newspaper, uh, newspaper investigations, and billions in settlements, the U.S. Department of Justice is investigating a religious group's handling of sexual crimes by clergy and church staff. This time, the Southern Baptist Convention is under investigation, according to a statement released Friday by the leaders of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. News of the investigation came months after the release of a report from the investigative firm Guidepost Solutions found SBC leaders had mistreated abuse survivors and mishandled abuse claims for decades. 
this would be an example, a counterexample, or a negative example of what Paul is not wanting them to do. He's wanting them to be authentic and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. But as we think about just examples like this, we, we can conclude they failed in the most basic human sense and in the most Christian, the most basic Christian sense. You see, my friends, what Paul prays is that Christians would abound in love so as to be judged authentic, genuine, the real thing, not causing scandal or causing others to sin. I was going to go somewhere with that, but let me just move on. Paul is asking the Lord to give him this kind of love that would abound more and more. So they may prove what is excellent, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is now the second time in 10 verses that he's talked about the coming day of Christ. And Paul, over and over again throughout his letters, wants Christians to be living in light of the coming day when we'll see Jesus face to face. You and I, these Philippian Christians, Southern Baptist Christians, Presbyterian Christians, all of us should live today in light of the coming day that we will see Jesus face to face. Paul got at the same point when he wrote to the Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Back to Philippians. Paul's praying this so that They would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I feel like that word righteous or righteousness has just gotten a bad rap, and maybe rightfully so. Usually it's thought of in terms of someone who is self-righteous, or those people think they're so righteous. I know when people look at some of the abuse situations that have happened in the church, in our nation, People think, those people think they're so righteous, but they're really not. When you think of that word righteous or righteousness, the root of that word is the word right. It simply means we relate to God rightly and we relate to others rightly. That's the core of it. So when you say a person is righteous, they're living in a right way. That's the way that humans are supposed to live. But as you know, the scriptures teaches us that there is no one in and of themselves who is righteous, not even one. But the good news is that Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous, that is Jesus himself, the only righteous one, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Paul is praying that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Having been made right with God, you begin to live rightly with one another. And he says this comes through Jesus Christ. If we're connected to the righteous one, his life, his his righteousness should be working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
By this, Jesus says, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus wants us so plugged into him, so in tune with him, in communion with him, that his life is flowing through us. And so prove to be his disciples. He says, by this, God is glorified, which is exactly where Paul goes in this verse in chapter 1. He says, I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's your trajectory that all of our lives should be focused upon. Paul will use this two more times in this book of Philippians, that phrase, to the glory of of God or the glory of the Father. This is an important northern star for each and every one of us. In fact, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, put it simply like this. So, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, even as simple as eating and drinking, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether it's your schoolwork or the work that you get paid to do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you're mowing your grass or changing diapers or helping raise funds, do it all for the glory of God. That should be the trajectory, the northern star of our life. Remember that place in the Gospel of Matthew where these words of Jesus are recorded when he tells his disciples, let your light shine before others. If I may just take the liberty to change, that's a horrible way of putting it. You don't ever want to change anything Jesus wants to say. But let's just for a, a, a mind experiment here, just put the word love in there. Let your love shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't go around and saying the pastor at Mercy Hill is changing the words of Jesus. He's not. <laughs> but how do you let your light shine other than loving people? Can you? <laughs> I can't think of a way that we can let our light shine that is not in connection with love. So I think in essence, Paul is saying, I'm asking God to grow your love more and more so that when Jesus comes back, and ask, where is the love? He finds it among his followers who are overflowing with love for everyone more and more. This is the essence of what he's getting at here. Or we could put it this way, the ultimate goal of this prayer is that we would love others in such a way that God is adored more and more. So let's think of just a couple points of application here, my friends. The first one is this. Let's marinate in the good news of God's love to us in Christ. It would be be wrong if we left this place and go, okay, I I need to love, I need to love, I need to love, without remembering where the soil of that love grows from. Let's think about it just in terms of marinating in God's love. The scriptures tell us that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Have you come to a place in your life where you're simply blown away by the simple truth? Let me encourage you to take this prayer from Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and use it as a point of meditating in your life. What if you were to to take just five minutes this afternoon or sometime this week and just take these words and just rehearse them over and over again in your mind? Breathe them in 
and breathe them out. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. To think through the implications of what that means. This is one of my favorite phrases from the Apostle Paul. Because I'm blown away that Jesus would have compassion and mercy on someone like me. Someone whose heart is often going astray. But he moves toward me all the more. And he didn't just say, I love you. He demonstrated it in a sacrificial way. The Son of God agaped me by giving himself for me. My friends, the more and more that you and I meditate on that, the more and more those don't simply be, aren't simply words in our life, but they become the reality out of which we live, the more and more we'll be able to love others. I love the way the Apostle John put it. 1 John chapter 4. We love because... He first loved us. So that's the first point of application. Let's marinate in God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Here's the second point of application. Let's convince ourselves that the call to overflow in love for others is the most basic sense of being human. This is not an optional add-on for those of us who follow Jesus. This is something essential that must be in place as we seek to follow Jesus. Take the words of the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. That's quite the statement, isn't it? If you could put on scales on this side, love. And on this side, the ability to know all mysteries, to have all knowledge, to have prophetic powers, to have faith that you can move mountains, which one would you pick? I know I'm kind of attracted <laughs> to the former, but Paul says if you got all that, you've got nothing. You failed in the most basic human sense. He goes on and says, if I give all I have, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I have gained nothing. If love is not there, we are failing at the most basic human level, the most basic human sense. So, part of finding joy right where you are is learning to love more and more right where you are. Part of finding joy right where you are is learning to love more and more right where you are. After all, God is, his love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we come to believe in Jesus and see God's great love for us, the Holy Spirit is right there pouring God's love into your life, into your hearts, to the core of your being. And may it overflow, bubble up, and just spill over. So, Maybe just get practical. What if most of us have some kind of to-do list, whether we write it out or we have it mentally in our head. But what if, in addition to having a to-do list, what if we had a to-love list or a agape, an agape list, a to-agape list is what I'm trying to say. What if, what if we were to sit down, maybe just mentally, at the beginning of each day as we think about it, and say, Lord, who can I love today? 
What would that look like? Lord, show me today ways in which I can overflow in love for others. My friends, this is what we're designed for. It doesn't matter if you get that project done at work if you're not overflowing with love. It doesn't matter if you nail that research paper or you get the promotion or whatever. But if you don't have love, you're missing the most basic human sense of being a human being and the most basic sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So here's our third and final point of prayer, our application. <laughs> what if we were to pray this prayer for one another? What if we were to take these words of the Apostle Paul, not just simply as something that was nice that was said some 2,000 years ago, but to understand that this is something that God wants to work in our lives as well? So what if in my prayer life I can say things like, you know what, Lord, if I could ask you for one thing in my friend Charles' life, I would pray that you would make his love abound more and more in all knowledge and all discernment. My friend Tom, Lord, Make his love abound more and more so that he may be sincere, authentic, and following Jesus. What if we begin to pray that? What if you pray that for me? What if I prayed that for you? If Paul had one thing he wanted God to do in their life, then surely that ought to be a clue to us. This is something we ought to be praying for for one another. Do you have anyone praying for you this way in your life? Why don't you begin to ask that? Excuse me. Someone says, hey, how can I be praying for you? You know what? There's this verse. It perfectly summarizes it. It's found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Give that to them and say, this is what I want you to pray. More than anything else, I would overflow with agape. This is where we're all headed, my friends. The new heavens and new earth is going to come. There's this sermon by Jonathan Edwards called Heaven, A World of Love, and I've shared this quote with you before, but in it he's, he's, he's defining how life in the new heavens and new earth is going to be, in this place where nothing exists but love. And he says these, these penetrating words. He says, in the paradise of love, everything is filled with love, and everything conspires to promote and kindle it, and keep up its flame, and nothing ever interrupts it. When we have life in the kingdom to come, Jonathan Edwards says, everything conspires to love. <laughs> to see love flourish, to see love overflow. And if that's where we're headed, my friends, what if you and I begin to live the life of the future now in the present? What if the way things are going to be begins to be the way they are in our lives? That would be amazing. What if people caught Christians not conspiring to do bad things, but conspiring? love. Wouldn't that be amazing? So, the question is, where is the love? Let the answer be, it's right here among the followers of the one who loved best.